Hello, and welcome to Barks Remarks, the podcast where we talk about the stories from the legendary Carl Barks, creator of Scrooge McDuck and writer and artist of the greatest Donald and Scrooge comics of all time. Join us as we explore his longer adventure stories in their chronological publishing order. We'll talk about what makes them so enduring, their historical context, and how well they hold up today. So get out your reprint and get ready to enjoy our remarks. Welcome back to Bark's Remarks. I'm Mark Severino, a grown man who loves duck comics. And boy, do I love the character of Magica Dispel. I can't believe that we've we've been I can't believe that we're finally at the episode where we get to talk about Carl Barks' famous Italian sorceress. I'm very excited to do so today. And I'm even more excited to bring on a new guest. It's wonderful to have him join the show for this episode. I'm joined by Alberto Beccatini, who is hailing from Italy himself, from Florence. And he is a retired English teacher, but also a Disney comics historian who wrote a book all about his love of Disney comics called Disney Comics, The Whole Story. Welcome to you, Alberto. Hello, Mark. Glad to be here. It is so great to have you on. Um, You and I were talking a moment ago about our our mutual love and affection for the Disney comics, Um, but I imagine it must be so much different being from a, a country like Italy, which of course is, you know, well known as one of the places where Disney comics are still very, very vibrant, very vital, and and very relevant. I introduced myself as a grown man who who loves duck comics. That that's a little bit more unusual in America, I think, than than in Italy. Do you mind talking a little bit about um, your love of the comics and what it means to be an Italian Disney comics fan? Yes, well, actually, yes, Italy is one uh, country where we, we've had the good fortune to have a lot of Disney comics on the newsstands. And uh, so we basically, we were, you know, we grew up, I'm talking about my generation, of course, and we grew up with Disney comics. You know, we have this weekly magazine called Topolino, and uh, it's still going on now. It's uh, 3,500, etc., and counting issues and uh, still going fairly, fairly strong, you know, not as it used to be in the 80s when the top, you know, was reached. I think it was well, one million copies sold. So you can imagine, I mean, this is Italy, of course, not the USA, and, uh, but it's still, still going fairly well. And, and we have a, a good production, um, local production of stories. So every, every week we have a, at least four news stories in Topolino. And then there are other magazines where news stories are published, of course, uh, all of them um, written and drawn by Italian writers and artists. So, you know, uh, how can you not be, you know, uh, fond of Disney here? I mean, it's and, and it's not it's not unusual to be a duck fan or a, or a, or a mouse fan in it. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> Especially with, um, I imagine with homegrown talent like Romano Scarpa and Marco Rota and, and other great Italian creators, right? You, you guys must have a little bit of sort of home country pride that, um, I would say that the Italians were probably 
the, the country after the U.S. to really run with the production of duck honics, right? Because, you know, they, they, they came out of the gate pretty early producing the homegrown stories. That's right. That's right. And uh, of course, the say the explosion happened in the uh, late 40s when uh, <clears throat> the first few stories were published in uh, in the pocket size, the Polino. So by, for example, maybe you're familiar with uh, the Mickey's Hell, you know, L'Inferno di Topolino, which is a wonderful parody. Parody, for example, is a great tradition here in, in Italy. And that, that was... Uh, Guido Martina, who was a wonderful writer, and Angelo Violetto, uh, who, uh, who was an illustrator, actually, but, you know, he somehow uh, lent his hand to comics for a while, and it was very good. And then, of course, came the, let's say, further generation. Uh, you mentioned uh, Romano Scarpa, and then uh, Giovan Battista Carpi, Luciano Bottaro, and, uh, and then the next generation, G Giorgio Cavazzano, mainly, and all his, all of those who tried with different results to, to imitate his style, <laughs> I would say. But anyway, we've always had a, a whole lot of, of art, of Disney artists here in Italy. Right, exactly. Those are a lot of names that are probably familiar to, to even American duck comic and mouse comic fans. I know Casti is, is a contemporary who's very popular. I haven't had the opportunity to read. I've, I've read a, quite a few Scarpa and, and Rota comics. You had mentioned um, Mickey's Hell. I think it was localized more as Mickey's Inferno, right, as a pair, play on Dante's Inferno. Haven't gotten to read it, but I am familiar with its release. I, of course, am limited by what I read when I was very actively buying the comics, which was primarily during the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. So, so there are a lot of great Italian ones that I still haven't gotten to read. Um, as part of this podcast, I've always been very interested. If you look on the site Index, uh, and, and if you look at the rankings, you know, there, there's a top 100, and you can kind of keep scrolling down the top 200 and 300. And there are are just so many Italian titles that are among those. Um, it's it's one very impressive, but two, it's also a little bit daunting because I'm like, wow, there are there are so many great Italian comics out there that I clearly need to catch up on, and I've been doing so gradually. I myself, of course, you know this this is Barks remarks, and and Carl Barks is my first love, but I do have a deep affection for many of those Scarpa and Rhoda stories. And it's really interesting to me too, that they clearly, I would say, that they are clearly very heavily inspired by Karl Barks, but certainly not derivative, right? Because the Italian stories definitely have their own flavor. Um, sometimes they're a little bit more wild, I would say. They seem a little bit less concerned with as cohesive of a narrative as the um, American comics do. What do you think about that? I think you're right. And yes, uh, when you say wild, I agree. <laughs> Some stories were really wild, especially the parodies written by Martina. Because as I said before, Martina was a genius, but he had this uh, weird, you know, approach to, to Disney comics. And think about it, he was he was a, he was a teacher. He, he taught, you know, Italian and philosophy and history. And so he had this cultural background that allowed him to, you know, go back to the past and tell about, and, and of course, um, remodel, you know, um, 
classics of literature, which he did, but in a weird, you know, completely crazy way sometimes. And so I agree, there is this weird vein to the uh, Italian Disney comics. And then, of course, uh, it's right what you said. I mean, that that generation of artists and writers, they, they were all influenced by Barks and Gottfriedson. Because remember that Gottfriedson was was very popular here. I mean, we didn't know he, it, it was Gottfriedson, of course, but he's Mickey right. Mouse. You know, the Golden Age, the Silver Age, Mickey Mouse were always very popular. And so um, consciously or unconsciously, I would say that Scarpa, Carpi, and stylistically, of course, not only, you know, story-wise, but they, they were heavily influenced by, by Barks and Gottfriedson. Right. Well, and of course, Barks himself was deeply influenced by Gottfriedson. Um, it's impossible to discount how influential Floyd, I, I myself, I, I adore the stories of Gottfrieds, and I don't get to talk about them as much as I would love to on, on the Barks remarks, but when I do get the opportunity, you know, as I, I reflect on it, I believe that one of the very first handful of Mickey Mouse stories that I bought, yeah, probably the third comic or so was one of the Italian Mickey stories. It was the middle chapter of the the Blotz double mystery, which which is a, just a I thought a wonderful, you know, like a, a noir detective, just incredible art, incredible writing and, and a very frightening story itself. I'm sure we could list off a lot of stories. You know what? I will list a few of my Italian favorites because I just I do have a deep love for that story. The Blotz Double Mystery. Um, I, I think uh, Marco Rota's uh, The Money Ocean when Disney Comics localized that in the early 90s, that was such a breath of fresh air to me. That was that was a fantastic story. I, I really do enjoy a lot of what Romano Scarpa has done. The Duck Comics, yes, but uh, again, I really like it when Disney Comics get just a little bit creepy. So I always think about Kali's Nail. That is that that one is a, a big favorite of mine. Um, like I said, I haven't gotten to read as many Italian stories as I would like, but they've been mixed in with the American reprints over the decades. So there, there are many of those that I have read. To, to be fair, I don't like all of them. Some of them do strike me as a little bit too weird. And I've got to imagine that just like it's really, it's best to read Barks in English, in the home language, so that you can understand um, some of the wonderful puns and allusions he's making. I imagine there must really be something lost in translation with some of these Italian stories. Yeah, actually, I, I did translate the, quite a few of them. For Italian publication, we used to have a one which was precisely dedicated to Uncle Scrooge called Zio Paperone here in Italy. So I had the good fortune to to translate. Well, I said the good fortune, but no, I, I enjoyed that. But of course, as you said, uh, uh, at times I, I had problems with, uh, ren I mean, rendering the real spirit of the Barks's puns, as you, as you said, you know, the nuances of language, which is very hard to do. Uh, but actually, I, I have to say that uh, the most difficult thing for me was to translate Don Rosa's stories <laughs> because they were so intricate. I mean, uh, the dialogues were so yeah. very dense, but I enjoyed every single moment. It took me days, 
but uh, but I enjoyed every every single moment. Oh, that's so great to hear. Yeah, I've I've been I I do have a spin-off show where I've been including the the Rosa stories more gradually as well, and they are so fascinating because so many of them do anchor around these very elaborate word plays, as you say. So it, it's really interesting to me the art of good translation. You can't, you, of course, you can't translate precisely. It's much more important to translate the tone or the flavor sometimes. So though that's that's great to hear that you've gotten to have that involvement as well. Yeah, I can say something about uh, when uh, it was about 1990, 1991, I think the early 90s. And I did some translations for Gladstone, for Byron Erickson, mm -hmm. and I translated two Scarpa stories. Oh, yeah. Was, yeah. But uh, what happened was that, you know, my English First of all, it's very British because I have a, a British upbringing. But and so Byron, uh, you know, he did a wonderful job of, uh, you know, turning it into into American English, you know, so uh, more, more fluent, let's say. But, uh, you know, so I yeah, I did. Uh, I mean, a few a few stories. Not, well, you not probably did many of the stories that I, I read. You know, Gladstone was the, the publisher that I got into the comics through so yeah yeah and uh it was it was that and that was my first approach um to um to translating you know italian into english for disney whereas i was doing the the opposite of course those years. yeah uh, so you've localized bark stories rosa stories <laughs> Um, I know you mentioned already that Rosa, that Rosa stories are a, a, a particular challenge, and I can certainly imagine why. Are there any, are. any are there any bark stories that you really remember being particularly challenging or interesting to translate? Well, um, I can't really choose one, but uh, you know, uh, the Ghost of the Grotto I did, uh, for example. And anyway, I, I always liked uh, Barks's language, so there was no no real problem. I mean, the real problem was in uh, justice, doing him justice. You know what I mean? So because yeah. Italian, is such, uh, unfortunately, the big difference uh, between Italian and English is that English is more concise, I think, and it goes right straight to the point, whereas Italian is a convolute you know, language where you always, even when I write in Italian, I have more difficulty than when I'm writing in English. May seem absurd, but it's true. So, and that, that's the story. But as I said before, it was it was a joy to translate those stories. Well, that, that's fascinating. Thank you for sharing that insight. You mentioned Ghost to the Grotto. You know, that's a personal favorite of mine. When I have new guests on, I do like to give them the opportunity just to so that listeners can kind of know where they're coming from. Do you mind sharing one or two of your personal favorite bark stories? Yeah. Oh, well, it's just like choosing my uh, five favorite uh, films. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> you can pick you can pick five if you want. I don't mean yeah. to put you on the spot. I, wait a minute. Uh, the um, Christmas for Shakta, I think it's uh, it's it's beautiful. I mean, the, the best Christmas story that he did and, and one with really, I mean, this this thing about poor people and, uh, you know, on, on the other side, living on the other side of the, of the railway, you know, it's really touching to me. And, and, and Scrooge's attitude, you know, just back to the Klondike, you know, the ending is absolutely moving. Absolutely. Uh, with the end. Uh, but, but there are, you know, for example, um, 
Ancient Persia is another one that I like very much. And Old California, I think it's beautifully written and drawn. It's, it's a, a classic, really. It's it's wonderful. The settings are particularly evocative, in my opinion. So that's yeah. more more or less. I, I think those are wonderful choices. I don't think you'll get any argument from folks. So I, uh, you know, we've we've been talking about kind of Italian comics, the Italian creators. Technically, our episode here is about a story with an Italian sorceress. But I'm just so interested in talking to you, Alberto. I I wanted to ask you a little bit about your book. I I I certainly wish that I could have read it, but but it is out of print here in the states and is is not the easiest to find. Um, but I would I would love to invite you to talk a little bit about your your book on. On Disney comics. I think I have an idea of why it exists, but why don't why don't you tell us what is the purpose and the what is the book about? Well, I think the title uh, says it all. <laughs> the whole story, which might be the whole story of Disney comics or my whole story, you know, because you know, um, on the cover there's me. In fact, on the cover when I was about uh, well seven or eight years old, reading Topolino. So <laughs> looking said, absolutely oh, adorable. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Uh, so you, you may compare my my current self to the, you know, my one-time self. Anyway, uh, the whole story uh, a little bit pretentious, I think, as a title, but uh, I tried to, uh, you know, um, encompass the whole uh, the whole story. I mean, in the in, in the different countries where um, uh, where um, Disney comics were produced, of course, beginning with the U.S. in 1930, when the first uh, Disney uh, Mike Mickey Mouse strip came out. You know. And then, of course, going on and so uh, through uh, Britain and then Italy and France and uh, basically every single country down to Brazil, you know, Argentina and Brazil, so South America. And uh, and I, I know it's it's a very, um, well, it's quite an enterprise, but, uh, well, I try to do my best. And, of course, there are there are some, uh, some uh, you know, things that I that wasn't able to write in the book or that, that were... Or, or wrong information, you know, it happens. Uh, even though I triple checked, but it, it even did. happens to the to the most diligent podcasters will will occasionally slip up with a couple of errors. Um, exactly. I, I imagine it has kind of some of the same energy of the this podcast. You know, to me, these comics are so vital, and they're both such a, a an an important framework for a kind of understanding the the era that they were produced in, right? I, I think if you really wanted to teach someone about the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, you could do worse than to just walk them through Barks's timeline of work and talk about, you know, the kind of the attitudes and the focus and the culture that was in them, but just the just how important they were for the generations of people that, that were brought up by their values. I'd say mostly for better, but, you know, there, there are definitely things that haven't aged well as well. So I just, I find it so interesting how, how much these comics reflect our societies. And, and I, 
Let me ask you this. Do you feel, I know Italy is a very different place, right, in terms of Disney comics, but did you feel almost a mission of, of trying to legitimize them in, in putting out the story, uh, the, in putting out the whole story? Well, I, uh, yes, in a way, in a way. Um, I have to say that uh, Disney comics were not uh, very much appreciated in the in the beginning, and uh, you know you may know that uh, the balloons were replaced by captions in 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 verse and rhyme right. at the beginning because you know because comics were considered uh, was considered something something you know not uh, let's say. Uh, not, not for kids, not for kids. You know that there was this attitude on part of intellectuals. I'm talking about the 1930s. But basically, the first comics magazine here, we used to have American comics. We used to have, I don't know, Bringing Up Father. We used to have Buster Brown, but no balloons. And they were all, uh, you know, the balloons were erased and, and uh, replaced by by captions in, in rhyme because it was not, uh, I don't know, probably somebody thought that kids shouldn't perceive them as, as comics, more like, uh, you know, uh, like stories. Exactly, more like literature. And uh, fortunately, it changed very soon after because we had the um, introduction of, of balloons, of course, in the mid 30s, and especially with the not so much with the Disney comics, but also, but also the King features, you know, comics like Flash Gordon and, and Secret Agent X9, etc. And so Disney comics be became comics. And since that time, I, I would say that uh, they they have been legitimate. I mean, I didn't have to make a big effort, a great effort to proved by by any kind of, of readers. So because we're, you know, we're so accustomed to them that, uh, that they're kind of ingrained, you know, in, in our culture. I would right. say that. Yeah, I'm not talking about the current generation of readers, of course, because they 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 only seem to read manga, which is which is still the going strong. But uh, up to people who are now in their forties, I would say they were all imprinted in one way or another by Disney comics. Yeah, that's I, that's interesting. I'm hearing that from a lot of European guests that there does seem to be a generational divide, and and as popular as the Disney comics and vital as they still are over there, that they do seem to be on the downswing, which is which is too bad. So um, you know, I'm hoping hoping that this podcast can do what it can to, to kind of preserve the profile of these. And uh, it sounds like your book really is just, just what it says. It's an appreciation. Well, well, that's great. Alberto, thank you so much for talking to me about this. Let's uh, let's make a point of, of getting on and into the story as, as interested as I am in hearing about the history of Italian comics. So listeners, we have a, this is a very special episode, right, Alberto? We, we get to, for the first time, we get to talk about that one of Bark's, I guess this must be Bark's last great character that he created. The, the Italian sorceress, Magica Dispel. She made her first appearance in this story, The Midas Touch. And um, this is, all right, so, so a little bit of background about the story itself. We are in 
the very early 60s still. This is September of 1961 when it was first published. It was first in a Uncle Scrooge number 36. Alberto, I always like to check out Index to see how widely published something is. And this one came out in 22 countries, 143 publications, and 14 of them just in the U.S., which is definitely more than the average. And that makes sense, right? Since we are seeing this character for the first time. It is a, a story that's a little bit on the shorter side. And and boy, I am talking as though people know who this character is. If you're listening to this podcast, you certainly do. But, but just a quick rundown. Barks you know, at, at some point in his storytelling in the 60s, he, he seemed to get this directive. Maybe it's something that he picked up on. Maybe it's something that was specifically told him to him. But he was um, he basically came to understand that he should turn away a little bit from the stories that were very far flung and maybe involved some kind of post-colonial conflict or treasure hunts. These kinds of things were starting even in the 60s. They were starting to be regarded as a little bit problematic. He, he did move away from some of the more stereotyped representations that he had done earlier. Um, but you sense he felt a little bit constrained. And so he it seems that he created this new character, uh, a sorceress from the steppes of Mount, from just outside Mount Vesuvius in Italy. She's clearly modeled after a certain famous uh, Italian movie actress. She is very I guess I think I think I usually see the adjective slinky associated with her. Very sultry. She has jet black hair. She looks very elegant and very sophisticated. And and it's worth saying that in most of the bark stories, she's not going to use a lot of real quote real magic. She's mostly going to use gimmicks here and there. He will give her some spells, but but Barks really likes his stories, his story elements to have a more scientific grounding. Alberto, why do you think why do you think Magica Dispel is such a fan favorite villain and character? Well, uh, as you said, first of all, and and Barks himself said that in uh, more than one interview, he tried to differentiate this particular witch, actually a sorceress, as you said, from the other witches, from the traditional Disney witches, who were usually very ugly. I'm sorry to say, but thinking about Hazel, witch Hazel, especially, you know, and, and so this, in fact, was sexy. This is very sexy witch. And, uh, and you can see that from the very first panel she appears in. She is sensuous, she, you know, she comes to Uncle Scrooge like, a, like a, an actress, in fact, as you, as you mentioned yourself. In fact, Barks was partly influenced by uh, Sophia Loren and, and Gina Lollobrigida, especially, and uh, by his own admission, uh, by uh, Morticia Adams in the Adams family, dressed in black, but Morticia had a very long dress, whereas Magica has a relatively short dress which of course shows her legs and uh, and high heel shoes and uh, well you know um i i think she's for a change you know um because if you think about it there are not many um sensual sexy characters in uh, disney disney stories disney comics I can remember at one time Bugs tried to do that with um, with a spy, you know, uh, in that famous uh, story. Oh yes, Duck. 
Uh, and, and he drew her as, as a human, which, of course, uh, he was at a certain point uh, forbidden from doing. So right. Decided, dangerous disguise yeah. is, is quite the departure. Miss, uh, Miss uh, what was that? Miss XXX or something like that. Right. Uh, Madame Triple X. Madame Triple X. Exactly. And so uh, I, I guess he decided to try it again, but this time creating a character that was sexy, but uh, in, in a dark guise, let's say. So, And that was more affordable in, in a way, even for uh, Disney comics, you know. Um, and, and that proved to be very popular, not only in Italy, but a whole lot of countries, Brazil, you know, especially. Uh, very, very popular in Brazil because, you know, they, they evidently they like magic there. <laughs> <laughs> so, but anyway, uh, and here in Italy, of course, because there was this affinity with uh, with Italian actresses, so and that was quite, and and of course the Italian uh, origins and location, yeah. logically. I'm I've got to imagine that that definitely made her extra appealing. Um, it may seem funny to talk about a duck character, a duckess, as she's going to call herself a few times, as being sexy. Uh, but but it is true that, you know, Barks wrote the characters as humans. People think of them as humans. And that is clearly the way that she has been coded as being drawn. I'm so glad that you mentioned all of his different inspirations that he himself has been clear about over the years i think you know that the actresses are are wonderful and and were so iconic at the time morticia adams is such a great character you know to have modeled someone after and she just has this great uh chaotic dark energy that i i do think was really lacking and and it's it's worth mentioning too that barks traditionally has not been the best with female characters you know his version of daisy duck is is usually to me she Every once in a while, he has a good um, representation of her, but she's usually just a, a foil for Donald. She's a little bit shrewish. Um, so it's it's really great to see this character that can really go up against Scrooge McDuck and is is very, very well written, is very entertaining. And Barks clearly is having a lot of fun, fun throwing into these situations. Uh, let's see. So, you know, one one brief thing that I do like to do, I didn't take notes ahead of time, Alberto, is I like to pander to international listeners by mentioning a couple of the titles from around the world. I'm going to try to be funny by doing the Italian title myself here. Um, and you can you can correct my butchered Italian. But to me, it's funny if I have an Italian guest. So let's see the very first publication, and it looks like most of them on Index. Um, this is Tio Paperone e la Fatuchiera. Fatuchiera? Is that the word? Perfect. It means sorceress. All right. Wonderful. So that, yeah. that seems like an appropriate title, even though it doesn't get that nice. Uh, I like that the English conveys what we're going for, the Midas touch, even if it's not the actual touch that turns things to gold, just like a, a you know, a touch that would make you rich. Um, let's see. So Alberto, let's do it. Let's get into this. We're going to we're going to see our first appearance here of Magic and Dispel. I'm going to be summarizing this story, but, but inviting Alberto to, to provide his own comments in between pages and sequences. I would say, Alberto, that one of the things that strikes me with this story compared to a lot of Bark stories is that it's very, it's very narrative heavy, as I recall. Maybe it's just at the ending, but we've got a, a pretty good number of 
pretty good amount of this story is told through Bark's narrator boxes. And, and his opening panel is going to do um, a lot of work. He's going to do a lot of work setting this story up with this narrator box that that wonders, basically, is the day of sorcery past? You almost sense, I think, that he's he's justifying for his readers why he, who usually doesn't feature uh, this kind of weird magic, why he's going to be about to introduce this very strange character. Um, and so we open on a splash panel of Donald approaching Scrooge um, and as he is m polishing some dimes that have gotten moldy from long disuse. And we get this little reference to his old number one, the first dime that he's ever earned. He's cleaning it. The reader, if if we've read this these stories a lot, we know about this. But of course, for a first time reader, Barks has to kind of catch us up just in case anyone is just embarking on these comics. I do believe this is the first time that it's called old number one. Um, and I do like here, Alberto, that Donald references that some folks believe that it's a sort of wealth charm that is the secret of your fortune. Barks has kind of alluded here and there. He's danced around the idea of whether it's lucky or not. But for the most part, uh, this is the best summary of what most fans would agree that um, he says, bah, mere superstition, thriftiness is the secret of my wealth. And this old dime is a symbol of that thriftiness, nothing more. So that that's a great, this is also a great issue in terms of kind of creating the mythos of his number one dime. Even if he's had it featured before, I think this is really the, the moment that crystallized its significance as a symbol of his wealth. Um, and at the, at the end of this introductory page, we see Magicka Dispel, the sorceress enter and uh, inquires if McDuck is in. And, and then we, and I guess it's worth mentioning too, we get this interaction with Miss Quackfaster, his secretary. And I believe that, that this is also her first appearance, even if it's less showy than that of magic. So, so Alberto, the first page has a lot of work to do essentially. It's going to lay the foundation for the rest of the story. It's going to set a lot of stuff up. And I, I think he's done it pretty deftly here. What do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with you. And uh, yeah, the introduction. And there's, there's, there's one thing I wanted to say about Magica here and her looks, because in the very few, first few stories, probably the first two or three, she has um, these eyes, you know, the pupils like a snake, and uh, yeah. which... Yeah will be will be changed um, afterwards and I think and slanted and then the the eyes are slanted and not you see probably to give her a more you know uh, to make her different in fact but uh, yeah. I think the, the snake-like eyes also signify of course uh, that she is that her intentions are not that good <laughs> probably absolutely she yeah. looks quite quite sinister in these first appearances. Yeah. And I and I think it really lands well for the reader. You know, we're we're much quicker than Scrooge is, right? Scrooge on on this next page here, Scrooge is going to allow her to come in because he just thinks she's a harmless oddball. Even though even though Donald is ha he, she's introduced herself as a sorceress and he is immediately worried about her. And basically Magica is going to explain her purpose for visiting Scrooge. And it's it's so interesting, Alberto, that this explanation is going to be her character arc in not 
every one of her subsequent appearances, but this is going to be like half of what she's going to be trying to do in, you know, the ensuing stories. She has this goal of acquiring coins from the richest men in the world. Um, she does specifically call out men because, of course, you know, we're still in the 60s. And, uh, you know, she saved Scrooge for the last. Um, she is, quote, study, right? Her her tests have shown that coins which have been touched by very rich men possess rewarding powers. So Scrooge says, oh, you think we plutocrats have a sort of Midas touch? And she intends to melt down these coins to create an amulet that will make her rich as well. So, so she makes Scrooge an offer he can't refuse, one dime for one dollar. And of course, you know, the, the way the story is going to hinge is that he's accidentally going to sell her his old number one dime. It, it's interesting to me that she has, for, for a pretty exotic, enchanted character, she has this very mundane goal, right? She just wants to be rich. Uh, any any thoughts on this next sequence here? Well, uh, she is, in fact, greedy uh, in, in a way. So in, the, in this way, they, they kind of look alike. You know, they have similar. Scrooge is greedy, too. I mean, he, to him, of course, money is, is all important. And I think for magic, uh, the reason why she wants to get rich is that she's not rich. She's poor, actually. If you look at her workshop, you know, on the Vesuvius, you can say, you can see that, the, the yeah. way she lives. So uh, she wants to become a rich sorceress, possibly to, you know, make magic more comfortably and, and um, you know, uh, using probably ingredients that she isn't able to, to get with the, with the little money she has. So this right. could be a reason. I mean, and then she's from Naples, you know, she's from Naples and Naples. Uh, I don't want to say it's, it's, a, it's a poor city, but at that time, certainly, you know, they used to have, they used to have many problems. Still today, there are entire districts in Naples, which are absolutely, you know, uh, like, um, I, I, I wouldn't know how to, to define them, but uh, now this happens in every big city, and Naples is certainly a big city. But I think uh, maybe Barks knew about that. Maybe Barks knew that uh, being Neapolitan, she would be kind of destitute, you know, uh, kind of wanting to, you know, to uh, to make it big. That's right. Say. We. We know that even if Barks didn't travel much at this time, that he was fascinated by the world through his National Geographics and, and really researched these stories more than you would think um, the average creator would. So this is, uh, it's also interesting to mention, I think, her whole approach. She's she's very feminine, right? She has a very feminine energy. She She's looking very sophisticated um, the whole time. She, she kind of has this sense of poise, right? She holds her head up very high. And Donald is just eyeing her suspiciously the entire time. Um, but again, Scrooge in the next sequence is going to make that mistake where he accidentally sells it to her. It's interesting to me that the first time she gets his dime is legitimate, right? It's it's a mistake and he didn't intend to. But um, you, there's a moment where you're like, oh, well, you know, it was legitimately hers for, for this brief span. Um, but as soon as he realizes he's going to run after her 
he and Donald will encounter the nephews on the way because we've always got to pull them into the story. And uh, he they they are able to catch her about to board her plane that'll take her back to Rome. Um, and and Scrooge has this you know exchange with her where he convinces her to switch it for another dime. Um, but unwisely, he does reveal. Uh, he says. This old dime is a sort of keepsake. It's the first dime I ever owned. And for that reason, and, and at that point, you know, she kind of drops the veneer of like sophistication and poise. I mean, she does stay poised throughout it. But as soon as she realizes that he, how much he must have touched this, how powerful it will be for her spell, she um, she hits him with a, a certain bomb that makes a flash of light and a puff of smoke uh, and, and goes poof. Although, of course, longtime fans can only think of it as being a poof bomb, right? What do you think? I, I love the humor that a lot of creators have mined out of those foof bombs. I, I, it is one of her the, the characterizations of her that I really do like. Ah, uh, the foof bombs. Yes, yes, of course. And very original. I think, uh, and and the trademark, uh, yeah. they become they become a trademark of of uh, Magica from this. But yeah. even 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 in the Italian comics. So um, um, if I can say something, just just something about uh, please. This, this story, as you said, was was uh, retitled Zio uh, Paperone e la Fattucchiera here in Italy, and it uh, it appeared uh, not long after. It had appeared in a few months later. And a few months later on, uh, the first story made in Italy with uh, with Magica appeared, uh, which was still in 1962. And, and you know, her adversary was Hazel. So we had we had two witches. We had a, you know, a fight, a, a fight of witches. Fantastic, if you think about it. Because, you know, um, Witch Hazel is another character that has always been very popular in Italy. Because it's the traditional witch and, uh, and of course, uh, the bark story is, is a cult story, isn't it? You know, the, yeah. the, one with, the one with the Hazel. So we have this connection, connection but also, you know, uh, of course, uh, fight between the, the Two different witches, the traditional one and, and the sorceress and the, the attractive one. And so right. it's, it, it's uh, very interesting, I think. Yeah, that is neat. I, I, I love Witch Hazel. You know, I think she's great. Um, I, and, and I loved Bark's version of her, even if he didn't technically create her, even if she came out of the cartoon. I think she's so interesting in his story. It's, it's neat to see that other creators, especially in Italy, have really run with her. You know, there's an interesting connection animation wise between the two of them, um, because Witch Hazel in the cartoon, Trick or Treat, was voiced by June Foray in, in the States. And Magica Dispel was originally voiced in, in DuckTales by June Foray as well. So um, she's a legendary voice actor, uh, of course. Um, I, I guess it's weird that her her vocalization has like an Eastern European accent in the DuckTales, but, um, but it's still neat that she got to do vocals for both. Yeah, I agree uh, with you. Yeah, June Foray did a, a wonderful, wonderful job uh, with many characters. I'm thinking about the Hanna Barbera characters as well. I mean, she's, yeah. And and well, Magica, you know, was certainly was not uh, Italian sounding, but nevertheless, 
Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, you know, she is going to take the dime by force, essentially. She's going to drop the veneer of, of cooperating, of, of buying it legitimately. And, you know, Scrooge is about to run onto the plane, but he finds that the walkway has been removed as the plane is about to leave. And so, you know, being a trillionaire, he has the resources to to get clearance for a, a rapid jet that can take off and try to beat her. And um, we have this neat moment. This is, I think this is one of the standout moments for me where Magica has very slyly stayed off that plane because she has made the judgment call that he is going to be trouble for her. So the reader gets this great view of her behind a column observing as as Donald. Donald is also a little bit wiser in, in this characterization by Barks than usual. Um, he's saying, you know, you shouldn't you confirm that she really is on that plane. Um, so I, I like that. I like that the characters are, are uh, Scrooge is probably the least clever of the characters in this one, to be honest, Alberto. So we're going to get essentially another, a replay of this plane boarding sequence on the jet that Scrooge is going to charter. But Magica is kind of, we, we've got this, you know, first person, we're going into her thoughts. That's that's one of the ways that we know Barks is really taking a character seriously, is that he lets us see their inner thoughts. And so she hatches this great plan. She's going to disguise herself and uh, craftily board Scrooge's own plane. Alberto, how is it that she how does she pose? I mentioned I mentioned Gina Lolo Brigida before, so you know she kinds of uh, uh, disguises herself as a, a, a duck duck version of Gina Lolo Brigida. In fact, she calls herself uh, Gina Lulu Duck, I think. <laughs> She's, but I don't know. I don't know how many American readers were able to you know understand that that was Gina Lolo Brigida in in a. In, in the dark guys, but, but of course the the I, I frankly I can't remember how that was translated into Italian. This Gina Lulodakita, but I guess it's similar because you know of course we're very familiar with Gina Lulodakita, so right. uh, the connection is there to us. But it, it's evident. I mean the inspiration is evident there. So. Yeah, and, and it's worth saying for younger readers that she she was a very famous Italian film star, um, widely thought of as one of the most beautiful women in the world. And uh, and for my own part, I didn't know who she was in the late 80s or early 90s when I read this. This would have been my first exposure. And then when I encountered her later, you know, in in papers or whatever. I made the connection. And this happened for me with with a lot of things, Barks, you know. It, it's also worth noting she ended up being very long-lived. I believe she just passed away last year at age 100 or so, if I remember right. Yeah, yeah, last year she passed away. Yeah, yeah she was she was rather long-lived actually. Yeah. Yes. So um she's going to stow she's she's going to in broad daylight join the ducks. And the nephews are very clever. They're immediately suspicious of her and her darkest pair of dark glasses, glasses that they ever saw. But she is going to foof bomb them when they go to investigate her dark handbag. Um, and so we get this very cute moment where Donald and Scrooge, as they land in Rome, they, they have beaten the jetliner. They're in a huge rush. 
But of course, they're going to take the time to see off their lovely passenger safely to the ground while uh, while the nephews are just waking up a little bit too late. I, I, I find that that segment very cute, Alberto. I agree with you. Yes, it's, it's not. And then, of course, the nephews kind of take back the, the their traditional role in in Barks's stories because they are the the wise ones here as you say it's it's interesting to to say that that Donald is more much more alert than than Scrooge's Scrooge's kind of you know um when he thinks about money and he thinks about <laughs> what money involves I think he kind of uh, loses his his uh, head in a sense but uh, but Donald is is Peculiarly, I would say, very, because, you know, Donald usually is so, um, well, uh, slapdash in what he does. And he he doesn't think twice, which he should have done a lot of times. Exactly. (laughs) But here, um, well, as also to balance probably what Scrooge's behavior. Right. And and Scrooge is very naive at the outset, but then at at this point, I think it's easy to chalk up to the fact that he's in a tizzy because of his dime being missing. But yes, Donald is very, he's wary. He's just not going to be as sharp as the nephews who are better at thinking one step ahead. Um, and, And we get this neat segment here in Rome where they, they do spot quote, Gina with the dark, dark glasses. Barks is going to make a point of calling out those dark, dark glasses enough so that they can be a returning plot element. And they do lose track of her, though, as she does another quick change just behind a pillar. You know, that seems a little bit naive to me, but this is that like comic book logic we talk about. Sometimes comic books are allowed to get away with things like that. So they do resolve that clearly that must have been magica and they let scrooge know that the sorceress is already here uh so so alberto our next segment is is pretty uh, i like this bit here this is the dragnet sequence right he's gonna hire every local detective he can and uh throw a net uh, around the city i do think maybe this sequence feels a little bit brief to me you know, Barks had to do these stories. His guidelines were that they had to be much shorter during this time. And I think this is a, a part of the story that I would have liked to see maybe stretched out a bit because it feels very quick to me that this mysterious lady detective suddenly shows up. Um, I do like that, you know, he can take this detective seriously, even though she's a woman, but, but it does seem odd, right, that in the early 60s, he might not have questioned that, because this seems like rather atypical. It is, of course, Magica in disguise, and she's going to trick the ducks into saying, you know, follow me and I can take you to your quarry. There's a funny gag where she hides what's in her black bag by by letting the nephews smell the disgusting garlic and onion lunch she has. This seems to be a little bit of a poking fun at Italian food, do you think, Alberto? I agree. I agree. Garlic and onions. Well, I, I like garlic a lot. I don't like onions that much, but certainly a lot of people use garlic and onions here to cook. Right. And so so they, they, they are typical. And maybe, you know, I, I can understand that the nephews, you know, have this uh, kind of reaction <laughs> to yeah. when he opens the bag. I mean, it's a, and they smell garlic and onions because, oh, this mixture. And you, mi- <laughs> you, 
you certainly wouldn't eat just those, right? They're always in, in the service of, of some other recipe or something. So that's quite funny and a little bit odd. That now, now the ducks are being quite naive there, right? Because she is able to talk them into partially putting on some disguises so that the sorceress won't see them coming. And, and they are large fish suits, which Magica mentions as she, you know, rips off her disguise. It's a great reveal. You got to love a reveal like that. She poof bombs or foof bombs them in, into being dazed so that she is able to completely tie them up in these fish costumes. Uh, and at this point, she disguises herself as a fishwife, um, you know, just taking a cart with her wares back to, you know, and is able to slip past this dragnet of detectives. Alberto, this is a, a segment that feels interesting to me, right? It feels very like, much like a throwback and, and like Barks's idea of what Italy must be like around this time. She's in an old like donkey drawn cart and, and just you know, posing as a fishwife. Does this seem to you like a an odd representation of an Italian woman at this time? Or, or does this seem like it is, you know, appropriate? Well, you know, I, I can't quite remember uh, precisely what was going on in 1961, but uh, I think that even at that time, but you know, if you if you if you went uh, to these little villages, you know, in Campania or Naples, is of course near Naples, you could still find these uh, these people, you know, using carts, uh, donkey drone cart, drone carts, you know. I'm not sure to say to say the, to tell yeah. the truth, but maybe of course. Well, Marx was was very well read. You know, usually he he used the, the National Geographic very very often, so he was usually informed about what was going on. But this could be a you know a poetic license, let's say, to right. <laughs> to depict Italy as as you know. Um, as it was years before, you know, then when the, the story is actually set. Yeah, I just remark on it because it does seem a little bit old fashioned to me. But I know that there are definitely parts of any country that are, are more and less cosmopolitan than others. So so Magica here has uh, is basically gloating to the ducks as they're bound and gagged in these suits. Um, she comes to a fork in the road, one of which will head south towards Vesuvius and the other will take them to the cat food factory at Felina, which obviously must be a made-up <laughs> city name, I'm guessing, since it sounds like feline in English. There was the cat food factory in 1999. Anyway, yes, I think it's made up. At least in the printing. I'm, I'm working from a, a 90s printing. For all I know, the dialogue might have been modified. It, it's it's a pretty funny setup, right? You, you imagine magic as being pretty devious here. Because as the cart rolls on and the ducks are eventually able to work themselves free, it's revealed that, in fact, the factory at the end of the line is a paper flower factory and that there is no cat food factory in, in many miles. So Scrooge has this. There's This, to me, is quite a funny panel where he's half-dressed as a fish and stewing. That infernal sorceress, she's made fools of us again factory what, what do you think about the italian dress here it's uh to me it strikes me as like 
maybe a little bit stereotyped, but it might also just be on the nose and accurate. I think, I think it's a little bit stereotyped too. Yes, uh, of course. Um, the 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 cat food, um, yeah, the cat food factory gimmick was just a gimmick. It was be, to justify the the fish. The paper flower wouldn't know. I mean, uh, I don't know if there is or there was a paper flower factory there. We 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 have a lot of them actually, but I don't I don't know about that area specifically. So, right. Uh, yeah, I wasn't sure if there was any significance to what kind of factory it was. It did seem a little odd to me, but um, but I, I just kind of wrote it off. I have a guess. I mean, I, I um, thinking about cat food and fish, uh, which smell bad, and paper flowers that may smell good. So I don't know. Maybe that, that there's a sure. contrast. He wanted to create a contrast between the idea, you know. Yeah, and you know, talking about stereotypes, of course, there's a long, a long line of, the, there's a certain idea among Americans of, of how Italians are. I would say that Bark's stereotyping here is is probably more gentle compared to a lot of people that that might have really gone overboard in this story. There, there are of course some elements of it that are just, oh, here's how we code Italian people in the 1960s. But but not too bad as far as these things go, I, I guess. Do you have any thoughts on that? I agree with you. He's, he's being uh, very uh, gentle, as you said, because, you know, uh, especially I have to say, there are lots of things said, not not only by by uh, foreigners, you know, about about uh, people who live in the south of Italy, you know, even the, the people from the north have this idea that the right. south, I'm in the center, so you know, I'm I'm kind of between two fires, so yeah. to speak. So I don't want I, to 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 take sides, but there is this idea that the south is, you know, kind of uh, more backward. No, yes, this idea. Whereas uh, it's a stereotype, actually. It's a cliche, which is attached yeah. to these people because, you know, uh, we've had a, a whole lot of uh, intellectuals and um, and artists coming from, uh, from the South and from Naples in particular. And I wanted to say something about Magica de Spell because they is a patronymic, you know, which is typical of Naples and Campania. I mean, I think everybody, well, most everybody remembers Vittorio De Sica, the film director, with Bicycle Thieves and other famous films. De Sica is an example of that uh, kind of surname with the patronymic. So I think Bax was well informed in this respect too. <laughs> yeah, that's a great thing to point out. I, I also, I've got to acknowledge, her name is outstanding, right? I think that's part of what makes her so iconic. Magica Dispel. It's fun to say. It's fun to read. It's just delightful. Yeah, I, I myself, my family background, I'm American, of course, but my, my grandparents are by way of Sicily and um, Calabria. So I'm, I'm a little bit familiar with how people think of the, the southern Italy. So at the end of this destination, you know, we transition to Magica now, her point of view. She's arriving at her home village, and, and we've got this great view of Vesuvius in the background that I haven't mentioned how poetic 
some of this story sounds. You know, magic is dialogue, especially her internal dialogue. She says, night is falling and Vesuvius is rumbling. Conditions couldn't be more perfect for my great experiment. I think Barks really likes to give her this kind of florid, flowery language here. And I think it works great. Well, you know, she's Italian, you know, it says what well, one of the categories we're, we're identified with is poets. So yeah. <laughs> navigators, poets, but lots of poets. So she, she is indeed poetic. I mean, and her language is, is uh, peculiar and it has to be because it has to be different from, from the language spoken by the ducks. So Marx is very, very clever in this respect. Yeah. yeah you yourself mentioned that, you know, it's, it's, Italians take a long time to say what might be more perfunctory and to the point in English. And as I look at her dialogue on the next page, when she's like preparing um, the coins in the crucible, she says, when this is lowered into the swirling, hissing lava, the coins will fuse together like packs of molten butter. Um, it feels like he is maybe going with uh, his what, what in his eyes is this more flowery less direct language that that's really neat to see yes but very again very poetic language sounds like uh now he, he was not italian but uh, think about coleridge's uh kubla khan a little bit when he describes the you know the environment and she, she's very descriptive she's very but then again uh italian is that kind of language or maybe was because now i wouldn't know now with whatsapp and everything else i mean right. even italian has, has become more concise these days, but uh, traditionally it's a literary language. So uh, it's very, as I said before, it's a, it's really difficult to speak, to learn, even for us. I mean, yeah. uh, because we're theoretically native speakers, but I'm a Florentine native speaker. So at home, I, I'll speak my, you know, vernacular language. And, uh, and but I, of course I can speak Italian and write in Italian, but uh, it's a really difficult language and, uh, you know, and, and the risk when you were talking and when you're writing, especially when you're writing, is that you completely lose your way. So, which doesn't often happen with English, which is more, you know, more concise, straightforward, right. you know. Yeah, exactly. But it, maybe it reflects the, the Italian's um, personality, which yeah. is not straightforward. It's kind of, you know difficult to delve. <laughs> okay, so maybe, maybe, I don't know. This next sequence, we do get a nice look at her sorcery shop, which again, it seems like she's just really eking out a pretty basic living on the slopes of Vesuvius. Vesuvius, of course, historically famous volcano that erupted in the distant past, um, but, a, but a great location to set a sorceress and, and her shop. Um, and we get to see her thinking about some of the mechanics of how the crucible must be of the finest fire clay to resist the fires. And she's just exulting that she's about to have the power of the Midas touch. And then we get this sequence that's really just meant to take the ducks from point A at that flower factory to point V at Vesuvius, it's, it's neat. There's not too much to it. Basically, Scrooge 
charters the plane that's going to deliver the flowers um, and, and it's going to drop them off at Vesuvius, literally drop them because there is no runway. And, and there's this funny moment, right? All the ducks, there's only one parachute available for five ducks to share. Scrooge instructs them not to cry out. And so they cross their fingers that they hit on a heart full of goose feathers. Um, and I, I just love the way Barks, you know, arranges these panels here. He says, we hit soft. What is this stuff in a silhouette? And then it's revealed to be a cart full of goose feathers. <laughs> um, I really like that little sequence. Just wanted to point out that uh, in the previous page, you have the first appearance of uh, Magicus uh, Raven. Oh, yeah. Magicus Black Cat. But uh, right. here yeah. they, they they have no name yet. And in the in the following stories uh, the raven will be called rat face but the, the the curious thing is that in italian he has a very neapolitan name he's called gennarino oh. <laughs> so, and the cat is called kitty so no no problem uh, right. but gennarino right. is i think fantastic uh because you know it's immediately identified with naples because gennaro is a very very uh, neapolitan name so Rat face wouldn't work in Italian, probably. Right. You know? <laughs> Honestly, it doesn't work that well in English to me. I never really cared for that name myself, but but it is it is interesting. Yeah, and, and he'll start talking in, at some point in, in some occasional stories. So, you know, we do have this moment now where we're, we're kind of barreling towards the climax. Um, the ducks are making sure that they, you know, they chide Scrooge not to go in half-cocked and to, to really think about how to avoid getting foof-bombed. Um, and it's going to be cut in with these scenes of Magicka getting ready. Uh, so, you know, Scrooge and Donald are going to get some disguises while the nephews do some sort of mysterious shopping. Magicka has a steel cable to lower the crucible. She makes sure to take a sleeve full of flash blinders, as she calls them. It's interesting. We see there that they're really not magic at all, right? They seem to just be theatricality. And uh, again, very poetic. She says, ah, Vesuvius, your breath is hot tonight. I do like how eerie Vesuvius feels. It's almost a shame that this is at uh, at nighttime, so we don't get a little bit more um, kind of Italian scenery. But then Barks didn't really get to do as many like splash panels around this time in his career, unfortunately. I, I like this sequence. I like how everything is. It feels very building. It feels very suspenseful. Alberto. Yes, I do too, and uh, and I I like uh, very much like the use of the silhouettes here and of the use of um, blacks. If you as you as you pointed out, in fact, because they really give the idea that it's well, of course, it's a night scene, and uh, and so the let's say embers on top of of the Vesuvius, you know, and the, the smoke coming out of it, they look eerie, as you said. Yeah. They, they look. Well, they, they actually do, because as you know, Vesuvius is an active volcano. So, uh, you know, you don't have to mess up with Vesuvius that much. <laughs> right. Know? Yeah, this is one of the 
settings that I think even Americans who are famously not very geography literate understand the significance of. And it gives us this great eerie glow that's being cast once we get up towards the top of the volcano. We get we get this neat sequence here where Magica is going to encounter the older ducks on her way up the mountain. Uh, and they are both disguised as sheep. And I really like how Barks gives the two perspectives, the sheep from the front and then from the back where we can just wordlessly see that it is Donald and Scrooge. Um, and, and throughout this this whole story, you know, he's made sure that his his new sorceress character is not easy to fool, right? She is deeply suspicious. She's not taking any chances. She's not easy to fool like the Beagle Boys say. So, so she flash blinds those sheep and then is, is shocked to see McDuck and his wily nephew. I was indeed in peril. Um, so, Donald and Scrooge are dazed, blundering around near the summit of the volcano. We see the nephews ascending the mountain, noticing that they're too late to, um, to get ahead of Magica and that they need to speed up and encounter their uncles and see if they need any help. Alberto. No, I just wanted to, it's an idea that I have, I don't know, a connection that came up in my mind, but uh, the thing that they disguised, I mean, the basically under, you know, the sheep, sheep's wool, uh, reminds me of of Ulysses, you know, when when he is in the, in, in the, uh, what do you say, Polyphemus, uh, the uh, one yeah. jump, yeah, okay, and, and, Maybe you remember that in the Odyssey. The Cyclops character, right? Yeah, the Cyclops, exactly, the Cyclops. The, the way they manage to escape is precisely that, that they hide under, you know, um, actual, I mean, real sheep. And uh, so, and also the, the connection with the Odyssey is that, you know, Magica is a sorceress just like Cersei. Yeah, in another story, in a subsequent story, she will play Cersei. So I think uh, Barks anticipated, sort of anticipated this idea that uh, that Magica would somehow play the role of Cersei in a, in a subsequent story. Yeah, I really like that connection. It does seem like, because I'm, I'm, we can be confident that he's never thinking about one story at a time, right? You, you've got to assume that as he's working at length on one storyboarding one story, other story ideas are coming to him. So you almost sense that maybe at this moment he is thinking about the Odyssey and, and perhaps bringing Circe in. You get the idea that he's having a lot of fun with this new character, right? Because he's going to use her, like, he takes a while to follow up with Flintheart Glomgold in a way that he goes right back to her very soon, several times within just a couple of years. So, you know, this, this sequence is very exciting, right? We've got the nephews are going to encounter their uncles nearly blundering into the fiery pit, just as Magica is lowering her crucible. Uh, just the idea of dropping, you know, something into an active volcano is very arresting. So I really like what the nephews say, fooey on a dime, we've got kinfolks to save. So they're able to, you know, barely save Scrooge and Donald from falling in. Um, and then they tie them up and they're doing this in the right order, right? They're sa they save their uncles. Then they go to save the, the, the dime, which is important to Scrooge, but it is ultimately just a token. And Barks is going to very carefully 
organize this? Well, um, well, first of all, I would say that uh, what you said, you just said, is is very it's very correct because um, I think Marx at this point thought that magic had possibilities. I mean. It was a developing character, I think, in his mind. And whereas the Beagle Boys at this point were kind of, you know, and, and they, they are limited to, to yeah. begin with. You know, the, the, their obsession is to crack the money bin. Okay, uh, Magica, of course, develops her own obsession because from this point on, she will be obsessed by the number one dime. So, you know, but, but she has possibilities and she has many more than the big old boys have. So I think I think that uh, Barks had uh, wanted and was ready to, to develop and to, you know, uh, broaden the abilities than, than, than Magica could have, being, being a sorceress, you know. And uh, I was thinking about the Magica, the spell thing, and the connection with probably one of the first beautiful sorceresses in uh, in well history let's say history but then I think uh, Morgan Le Fay so I think this these three three um, uh, word uh, name is kind of magic at this spell maybe maybe I'm, I'm, I don't know really but maybe Bax was also thinking about Morgan Le Fay here uh, because she was beautiful in in the first place so she was a real we, we call it Maliarda in Italian which is hmm. totally different from from which you know because strega i know that this idea of the of the ugly witch was changed even in anglo-saxon culture to a certain point I'm thinking about films like uh, i married a witch with veronica lake and then bell book and candle with kim novak which is one of my favorites nice i love that film so we have beautiful witches there and they're witches witches no doubt but the the idea of the maliarda is precisely the beautiful witch that will you know charm you with her with her magic or whatever potions whatever she has at hand you know but then again as i said before the idea changed i mean uh because if you think about the tv series bewitched you know with elizabeth right Samantha, i mean she was beautiful and she was a witch so i this idea that the witch has to be uh, as we said the beginning uh, beautiful instead of you know repulsive i think is is very important here i wonder if the word enchantress is almost more more appropriate for her right exactly well here why don't i go ahead and take it home so I, th this is pretty neat right we've got this closing sequence here that gets very exciting it's very suspenseful um it is maybe a little bit brisk just because again this is a 17 pager he doesn't have time to stretch it out as much as he might have in the early 50s uh but magic is just desperately foofing them um we actually do see the I, in my issue here it does transliterate it here at the end as foof instead of poof interestingly i'm wondering i'm not actually referencing the original number 36 um but she's saying drat you kids why don't you go numb and they are able to get a get a lariat rope around her and pull her away from the edge and and eventually recover the crucible and 
Scrooge sees that uh, they've saved his dime. I do love that Scrooge is just ready to grab it with his bare hands, despite it just coming out of the lava or just above the lava. Um, and we get the reveal. Donald asks, how did you kids avoid magic as sorcery? Why weren't you blinded by our magic flashes? And they say, we used an old trick of hers, Uncle Donald. We bought ourselves some dark, dark glasses, just like she had used as Gina Lulu Dakita at the beginning. It's a cute little turn. It's maybe to me not as satisfying as some endings, which might hinge on an earlier intro. It, it seems a little bit more offhand uh, of a resolution, maybe, but it still is appropriate, right? It just doesn't seem like something that's fundamental to our character or any, but but it, it it works well enough for me. And we get this fun little capper sequence where Scrooge is just celebrating that his dime is, is other than being a little darkened from the heat, it's otherwise the same. Honestly, that seems like almost a neat battle scar for old number one to have. And the ducks run away while Magicka is just pelting them with rocks here. So it's, it's a fun ending, if a little bit abrupt. What do you think, Alberto, about this resolution here? Yes, well, well, it couldn't have been otherwise. I, I appreciate the fact that uh, Barks anticipated the dark glass uh, gimmick, as as he of, often does. Because you know, when you read Barks's stories, very often you will have to go back because in the meantime you have seen something that you had already seen before. So you go back. Right. Oh, that's where he first used. Oh, that's what he wanted to do. That's that's one of the things that made him a great you know, writer, really, storyteller. And yeah, also, it is very uh, rewarding. Yeah. And, and uh, well, the, the very last panel uh, is is interesting, too, in my opinion, because, you know, you have Magica, who's not even no longer able to utter a single, you know, uh, intelligible word at this yeah. point. Yeah. Just, you know, you know, something like that, because she's she's gone she's gone mad, you know, and and she's throwing stones at the ducks, and it reminds me of many an ending, you know, in Italian stories, Disney stories, where somebody's chasing somebody else, and in and very often it's Scrooge chasing Donald. And then you get uh, which Barks used um, yes. in the yes. 1940s quite a few times. And then you had that uh, road sign which said Timbuktu or whatever. Yeah. I don't know, 3,500 miles, etc. And we usually had them. We always had Scrooge chasing poor Donald, who was always running away. <laughs> so I'm I'm very familiar with this this kind of ending in a way. I'm so glad you pointed that out, right? Because this this wild woman, this very like feral ending for her. I mean, it's she's way wilder than Scrooge might have been chasing Donald or even Daisy because she would do the same thing. And she's usually very mad. But Magica is just raving and hissing and spitting. Um, and it's such a contrast from her introduction where she's very poised. So this seems to be an element of, of her characterization that a lot of people would use later. They, I, I feel like there's as much of this, you know, Magicka uh, hissing and spitting as in frustration as there is Magicka being very poised and proper. Um, and it's probably part of the appeal of her, her character, too. I think. I think it's also part of the fact that she's Italian. Yeah. <laughs> you can say it, right? 
I'm only Italian American. No, I'm I'm not saying that uh, Italian women are bipolar, but uh, but they certainly have quite quite a personality most of them. Yeah. So you know they they may appear so very you know uh, as you said so. At, at the very beginning, you know, serious and, and you know, and, and in the end, instead, they may completely uh, lose their heads for, for different reasons. I mean, but uh, right. and maybe I, I, I'm not generalizing here, of course, I don't want to generalize, but uh, but I'm talking about myself, for example, <laughs> because I am that kind of guy. So <laughs> and, and you're and, talking uh, about widely held perceptions, whether they whether they're you know accurate or not. This is what a lot of people think about, right? And in storytelling, you know, storytellers use these perceptions a lot too, right? What what is the shorthand that the readership knows about someone? So Alberto, let's just reflect a little bit on how well this story works, right? Uh, th this, of course, is a, a very, it's a milestone story. It's very famous. It's certainly one of Vark's most famous stories. It is probably his most famous of his later stories, just because it introduced this iconic character. I really enjoy this story. I, I think it's great. I don't think it's quite up to like the the maybe the highs of some of his all-time classics, you know, stories that you've mentioned, like Ghost of the Grotto and in Old California and Back to the Klondike. Um, but I do think it has some excellent storytelling. I, I think it does a lot of great work just in setting up a character that you sense. You sense that some of his energy, I think, that he put into the story was really about establishing a character that he could probably use going forward. So, so if it's not one of my favorites, I, I there's just no denying how like important this one is to Barks fans and Disney fans. Um, and I do think that there is a lot to love about it. I love how how poetic it is. I love the eerie atmosphere that he achieves with this one. And uh, and you just, you really cannot deny the character of Magica Dispel herself. What, what about you? What are your kind of take-home thoughts about this? I agree with you. I think the story had, has very good rhythm. And, you know, it it, it looks, um, it's something in between the 10 pages and, and the long-winded um, stories, you know, the 32-page stories. Because at this point, as you said, the Barks had to kind of, you know, limit himself to, you know, as, as regards um, pages. Um, but I think it's well balanced. There is, uh, and there is something, you know, it, it as, as it often happens with Barks' stories, actually, it sometimes looks like an animated cartoon very much, especially the midst, the mid, the midst, the middle of the of the story you know the, the fish sequence is very cartoony to me yeah very dynamic very dynamic i i like it a lot and so uh, well barks is a master at doing this and i think the best disney stories have this quality this cartoony you know this animated quality you know what i'm saying is that uh, barks having worked in uh, the animation department for for quite a few years he was perfectly you know aware of the cinematic quality of right. of, of good comics and right. that, he was a story man primarily so he knew how to you know time his stories so uh the timing is something that i think is is very has an affinity to to animated cartoons here not only here in most of his stories in fact the 10 pages are 
are animated cartoons on paper to me. Uh, yeah. The structure, you know, the circular structure. This is not so circular, actually. But, it's true. Uh, we we even end in um we we even end still in Italy, right? The ducks haven't even returned. And I know circular is not just about where you literally start, but usually. Uh, because you know the ten pages are usually uh, usually have these circular stories. They they go back to the to the situation at the beginning. Whereas here we there's there's an evolution on the way, and uh, but but it's 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 well crafted. It's well constructed. I think it's uh, some of course some things may may sound stereotyped, especially to us Italians. But but you know uh, it's part of the. The fact that it's a, it's a work of imagination. It's not it's not real. As I always say, I mean, with with fiction, and this is fiction. It's not fact, so it, it's okay. I mean, people don't don't have to to, to, have, to take a grudge, you know, uh, because because you know they are depicted in a certain way or, or another. I mean, it's 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 okay with me. They uh, the story could be could have been set in Florence and and depict the Florentines in a certain way. I wouldn't take offense for that because it's a work of, you know, it's it's a comic strip, it's a work of fantasy, and, and it's well, well built. Of course, I too prefer the, uh, you know, the 32-page stories, I mean, the, the classic, the Scrooge classics, but... Uh, but certainly here we have we have more like a character-centered story, which yeah. I very much appreciate. Barks tells us how Magica is, more or less, her, her different facets, right? And uh, and the subsequent stories is, is titled The Many Faces of Magica the Spell, maybe for different reasons, but maybe Magica is more like a, it's more like a a complicated character than many other Disney characters as a whole. So I think it's it's very interesting that he created this this character. Yeah, I think what you said there about it being a character study is is a really good observation because it, so much of this just is concerned with establishing Magica as a working character. It almost feels like this story is for Barks. It's, it's almost for Barks, right? Because he here he's giving himself this character to utilize. So Alberto, um, that that's what we think. I think it seems like we both think very highly of this story. Um, maybe even if it doesn't quite reach some of those past heights, I do like to check in on Index to see how the overall community, you know, rates a story. And it shouldn't be a surprise that this rates extremely highly on Index. This gets a score of 8.1 by the people who have voted for stories on there out of 10, which is good for rank number 24 out of all 30 of uh, 43,000 some Disney comics. There's no doubt in my mind that it's inflated just because it is her first appearance. I don't think it really merits that exalted ranking, you know, the top 25 Disney comics of all time, as far as its storytelling goes. But you really can't deny how how crucial it is for giving us this uh, just wildly entertaining character here. Uh, and, and no doubt, well, having a look at Barks' latter stories, we can, we can easily say that's it. 
it's one of the best. Even art-wise, because, you know, uh, I don't want to say that he was sloppy in these years, but certainly, you know, my, my I think everybody's favorite Barks period is, Barks period is 1948 to 1952. Something. He yeah. was suffering yeah. like hell during His those golden years. Age. You, you have to understand, of course, here he was, it, it's 61, so he was already 60. And, and, you know, his hand was no longer what it used to be in the 1940s, when or mid-40s, late-40s, when he was at his top. But uh, but the art is very good here. It's still very um, evocative in some points, really. I mean, uh, and, and of course, the exotic set, setting, I think, enhances this gives him possibilities that he wouldn't have had if he had uh, uh, you know set the story in 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 a, in another in another place more familiar right know, right yeah i think you're absolutely right this does have quite strong art especially for the period so alberto i think we did uh, some justice to this this classic this great and very important story. Um, let's. We're going to go ahead and wrap this up. But before we do, are there any panels that you would like to call out as you know, just ones that really stood out to you as a personal favorite? I know we had called out kind of some of those silhouettes near the end of the Vesuvius scene. I really like that. I think. I think one that really stuck with me is the great silhouette that shows um, that shows Donald and Scrooge climbing up the mountain with Magica working in her sorcery shop in the background. And then I, I really like the, the back view of the ducks dressed up as sheep. Even though there are heroes, there's something menacing. There's a, a certain sinister menacing quality to that one that I find really appealing. Um, not to put you on the spot. How about how about you? Any any favorite panels here? Yes, um, those you mentioned are certainly, especially the silhouette one, is amazing to me. But uh, I would like to go back to the second page and the close-up of Magica, you know, with her yeah. eyes glowing, you know, and can is is really wonderful to me because um and she looks beautiful by the way <laughs> which doesn't hurt does it so right and and i think she uh, and here you have an inkling of of what will will happen next i mean you can see that her, her look is not so i mean it's kind of she's kind of excited i'm not saying that this is the uh, beginning of her madness but in a sense it is i mean you can you can perceive that there is something going on inside of her and yeah. something wrong probably so <laughs> yeah and, you uh, get a great hint of it there alberto i i just want to thank you so much for joining me for this episode this was a, a delightful conversation um i would love to encourage people if they can find your book uh, i would certainly encourage people to check out disney comics the whole story you check out the great commentary that you've done in some of the about some of the bark stories in the fanographics collection i know you've also translated any number of comics um so really keep an eye out for alberto's name in many disney comics places um anything else i should point folks to alberto no i i only have to thank you for being your for being my host really and uh, really uh, i appreciate that because you know talking about 
Disney is is always a joy for me. So uh, it was a very interesting conversation, and uh, it's always a pleasure for me to talk about Disney stuff because you know, as I said before, I grew up with it. It's my upbringing, so it's really a pleasure. Again, thank you, thank you very much. Oh, absolutely. The pleasure the pleasure has been all mine. You're you're welcome on um, any time. It's been a it's been a real delight to get an Italian perspective, a Disney historian, Disney comics historian perspective. I, I think this has just been a wonderful conversation. Um, so folks should check us out. Barks Remarks can be found on various social media, on um, Instagram, but mostly on Facebook. And uh, keep an eye out for our next episode, which will cover the cave of Alibaba. Um, Alberto, again, thank you. I'm so grateful for having you join. Thank you, Mark.